parents, I forgot to give you your gift, so, uh, oh, we got some takers here, that's good. So re- remember to come get uh, your, your gift for your child afterwards, and uh, man, I'm all a mess right here. Thought it was going to come back down. Okay. okay, here we go, here we go, we're on it. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we just, we thank you so much for the privilege of, uh, of being together, young and old, um, different nationalities from different backgrounds from different spots and you brought us all into this one place that we might worship your great name father not only for what you've done but for who you are and what you've done for us like who you have made us god we thank you for this and god we want to be reminded as as this day will be a a memory in in the lives of our of our children and families god we want to remember sunday after sunday and day after day, the work that you have done through your son, Jesus. We want to be setting up memorials and remembrances so that we can look back and we can say, look what God has done. And when our sons and our daughters ask us about these things, we could say, it was the Lord with a strong hand who brought us out of Egypt, our own slavery and bondage to sin. Oh, great God of highest heaven, we pray, occupy our lowly hearts, own us all, and reign within. Conquer every evil power. Don't let one of them have victory over us, and not one of them have victory over our kids. Bring them safely into your family and safely home. Father, you are the good shepherd gave his life for his sheep. You've been the good shepherd all of our days who's been leading us beside still waters and restoring our souls and green pastures, who has been leading us along for your namesake. God, you have given taking us all the way through and through all the dangers, toils, and snares. We want to believe that we will arrive safely on the other side because of your amazing grace. Oh, we thank you. So help us remember. Help us, help us put our eyes upon you and remember. We can't do it without your grace. So we pray that as we open up the, this book, these words of life, that they would become life to us. That you would help us to see and to know and to feel all the things that you have done for us feel rightly about them and give you praise. God, we we just want to pray for the other churches in this area as they meet this morning. We we pray just a, a blessing on the clear the clear preaching of the gospel that will come from pulpits. Holy Spirit, we pray as your word is read that you would work on the hearts of your people and work on the hearts of those who don't yet know you. Bring you in, bring them in. We pray that you would do that. And for us this morning, we pray that you would settle us with your love. Settle us by your amazing grace, the great deeds you have done. The, the, God, our hearts are prone to wander. And we need you. We need you to bind our hearts with the fetters of your love so that we won't wander. And bring us back into the fold. God, use your word to remind us that you you cannot love us more than you do right now because we're in Jesus. Those of us are who are in Jesus and have trusted him cannot have more love from you than we have right now. Forever and ever, we'll be stepping into oceans and oceans of love. I pray that that would motivate us to, to live lives that are pleasing to you. And God, we ask that you would do that for us, for other churches, for those abroad. We pray for our dear friends, Trevor and Nivia, who are abroad. We ask that you would use them, strengthen them with your gospel so that they might do gospel work in unreached places. And we pray that for other missionaries that we might know or connected to. God, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. And Father, so we we thank you that you're at work in this world, not just here, but 
everywhere, and, and we pray that until you come again, your word would be drawing people to yourself. And Father, as we open your word and we turn to you, God, I pray that the words of my mouth, God, and the meditation of all of our hearts, as we think about remembering you, would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and the one true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. We're going to be in Exodus uh, chapters 12 and 13 this morning. Exodus chapters 12 and 13. That's the, that's the first half of the New Testament Bible. So if you see Genesis, it's the next book after that. Exodus chapter 12. Big numbers are the chapter headings. The smaller numbers are the verse headings. They look like footnotes. We're going to be in chapter 12, 33 through 13, 16. Okay? And uh, so we just sang earlier this song called The Church's One Foundation. It was written in the 1800s by a man named Samuel Stone. And he wrote it in response to a theological controversy that was going on in his day. There was a, a, a South African bishop named uh, John Colenso who denied some certain tenets of the Christian faith, like the inspiration of scripture and certain things about God and marriage. And, and, and the controversy welled up, and, and in response to this, Samuel Stone wrote this hymn. It was actually supposed to be a set of 12 hymns. It was a set of 12 hymns based on the Apostles' Creed. And the church's one foundation uh, was the ninth article, based on the ninth article of the Apostles' Creed about the church's unity in Christ. And he tells us that the church's foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. That's the foundation of, of, of our gathering I'm a pastor here, but I'm not the head of this church. I'm, I'm not the foundation. And our dear brother Samuel Stone in the late 1800s was helping us to see that the church needed to hold on to the matters of first importance, the gospel. And the songs that we sing are aid our memory and help us set up little memorials in our mind of who God is and what he has done. Exodus chapter 13. God gives us three, more, three memorials. God gives the children of Israel three memorials that set in motion a yearly tradition of remembrance. God wanted his people to remember what the Lord had done for them. What the Lord had done for them by reminding them of who they are. He had redeemed them out of Egypt with a strong hand. That's what he was doing right now. And he was reminding the first readers as they're heading into the promised land that this is what he had done for them. And if he could deliver them from Egypt, how will he not also freely give them the promised land? He was delivering them from slavery to worship. From misery to gratitude. He delivered them so that they might be his special people, his, the special people to him. Not because they were better off, not because they were better than the other nations, but because God wanted to show off his grace. Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus is an Old Testament paradigm for salvation the New in the New Testament. This is called the doctrine of soteriology. It's called the doctrine of salvation. Ology is like the logic of something. And soteros is the Greek word for salvation. So it's the logic of salvation. It's the doctrine of salvation. And Exodus is, our, is a paradigm for how salvation is going to happen in the New Testament. So Exodus becomes a type. When you're reading the Bible, you, you should look for types that point us to Christ. Point us to the New Testament. What explain what the New Testament explains? What the Old Testament was was showing. So Israel represents humanity, especially the elect. And the, this humanity is enslaved in the misery under Pharaoh of Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. Egypt represents the bondage to sin and the world and the devil. And the judgment against our sins that we saw in the plagues, the judgments against 
our sins, the flesh, and the devil, God poured out on Egypt represent those judgments taken on Jesus and the cross. In the Exodus, Yahweh and Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods are put to open shame in his triumph over them. And in the cross of Christ, God puts them to open shame. He defeats them. So the cross becomes the final exodus that the book of Exodus is pointing us to. You want to know what Exodus is about? We look forward to the day when Jesus saved us by taking judgment on the cross. So Exodus shows us God's intent on making himself known. You remember, this is something he said throughout. I'm, I'm going to make myself known to you, Pharaoh. I'm going to make myself known to you, Israel. I'm going to make myself known to you, Egypt and the nations. He's going to make his sovereign power and his rule over everything known. However, this isn't the only thing he's doing. He's doing something else. God as well as making his power known, is also making a family for himself. One New Testament term that expresses this reality is called adoption. He has set his love on his people Israel and is using his power and glory to make them his own. We see this early on in the book. Chapter, you can just turn back to chapter 3, verse 7 if you want to see it where he calls Israel my people. He's talking to Moses, and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says that Israel is my firstborn son. He's making a family. In chapter 6, verse 7, he tells Israel, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. In chapter 9, verse 3, he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Because Yahweh takes his relationship to his people as father and son so personally, so seriously, and so joyfully, he tells Pharaoh, look, if you do not release my firstborn son, I am going to have to take yours. It's justice will be meted out on Pharaoh. So we might throw the word family around flippantly, but God does not. Yahweh does not. When he brings someone into the family, he performs all his duties as father, provider, protector, uh, the, the lover of his family. So what I'm saying is, in this redemption of Israel, Israel is not only brought out of slavery, but they're brought into a new family. God never wanted them to forget it. He, you know, we have pictures of our kids to remember our, uh, their births and we celebrate their birthdays with cake and, and, and parties every year. And, you know, in the same way, the Lord in his kindness wanted Israel to never forget what God had done for them and who they are. So he gave them yearly ceremonies to remember what he did and who they are. God does two things for Israel as we dig into the, the passage this morning. So in the interlude, the, the first point here in chapter 12, verses 33 through 42, we see that God both frees and provides for his people right on time. Let's turn our eyes towards the scriptures. Chapter 12, verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said... We shall all be dead. You remember that God brought nine and then ten plagues on Egypt. And the last one was the death of the firstborn son. And now they are urgent to get God's people out. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians 
And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was at night, it was a night watching by the Lord to bring them out of Israel, bring them them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is God's word. So Moses is no longer urging Pharaoh to let the people go. Now the Egyptians are urging the Israelites to go. Get out of here before we all die. And you could see, as I was reading, you could see that they left in a hurry by the way they, they packed. Right? It was, it was carry-on only. Right, Because they didn't, they didn't have time to stop at the baggage carousel once they got there. So it's carry on only. So easy on, easy off. That's the, whole, that's the whole deal. God was setting them free. Freedom was on the horizon. Verse 34. So they don't have much time to pack. God had decided to provide for them in another way. All they needed to do was ask. Ask the Egyptians for what money and clothes they had. And verse 36 tells us that or they asked and were given in abundance, that they plundered the Egyptians. That they, it's a military term is when someone conquers a nation and comes in and plunders all of their goods. But you'll notice this plundering wasn't done by taking up of arms or, or fighting. It was done by asking. The Lord alone did this for them. As you, you can see that they didn't have time to make provisions for themselves. All this was showing us that it was God who was doing it. It was God who was providing for them in abundance. It was God who was freeing them and giving them everything they needed. God was freeing them from any temptation to, to, to think that they could free themselves or provide for themselves. So in total freedom, God was setting them free. He brought them out just at the right time. You notice in verses 40 and 41, at the very day appointed, Genesis 15, 13, God is talking to Abraham. He's reiterating his promise to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And it's probably that either God is rounding off, or, or Moses is, is, is saying that they were there 430 years from the, from the, from the time of the patriarchs till, till now. But on the very day God had appointed, he brought them out by his own powerful hand. All they needed to do was ask for what God had called them to ask for. They had enough, by the way, in their asking, they had enough to make it through the wilderness wanderings, to set up the tabernacle, and make it into the promised land. God's people have everything they need for the asking. Has God not promised that he is able to do abundantly more than we ask or think when we ask according to his will? And as the Israelites plunder the Egyptians at the hand of the Lord, are we not also more than conquerors through him who loved us? How do we plunder? Through the one who loved us. Remember what he did. Remember who you are. This is the interlude as they're coming out of Egypt and going into a, a time of remembrance. Remembering can be hard. Uh, at least it is for me. My wife has a, a pretty good memory and an eye for detail. Me, not so much. Um, but one of the things I, I've learned to do is, uh, is to use mnemonic devices. You know, there's other things you can do. Keep a to-do list. Write it down. Put it on your calendar. 
uh, it'll, it'll notify you if you do it right. Sometimes I don't do it right. It doesn't notify me. So sorry if I've ever missed an appointment with you because I forgot to notify myself. It's a tough crowd, man. You guys are, it's a tough crowd. Okay, so one of the things, uh, I used to work at FedEx for 15 years, and one of the things to do aid in memory on being a good driver is this mnemonic device. All good kids like milk. All Aim high in steering. Get the big picture. Look, keep your eyes moving. Leave yourself an out. Make sure they see you. All, all of that as a mnemonic device help you become a better driver. You can ask my family. It's worked. I am a really good driver. <laughs> they don't have their masks on, but I think they're mocking me right now. I'm the only one that's, I think, got in an accident and tickets. So. But the way God helps his people remember is by setting up these yearly ceremonies. You know, they're like mnemonic devices. They help us remember. He wants them to remember what he had done for them and who they are. So he gave them the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborn. This is what he did. As he's bringing them out, as he's plundering the Egyptians, and the, the host goes out of Egypt, Israel is called to remember. And friends, so are you. Even in the darkest night, it's darkest before the dawn. And God is calling to you to remember in your darkness, what has he done? Who is he? What has he done? And what has he made me? So when you fear, when you're anxious, when you don't know, when you doubt, God says, remember. And he's given us ceremonies to remind us. The first one he's given us is the Passover, chapter 12, verses 43 through 51. And it, here's, hear the word of the Lord again. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take away any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let his, all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. One law. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is God's word. So friends, no family could eat the Passover unless their males had been circumcised. This was a, a covenant sign of God that God was placing on them. Circumcision was the sign that God has put his love on them, and they believed God. And verses 43 and 45 are, are a little troubling as you read them first. God is excluding certain people from the eating the Passover. He says no foreigner may do it, and no temporary worker, no one who's who's just going to be here for a little time and go on, may eat of this meal. God is excluding certain people from taking it. And then, wonder of wonders, anyone who says the Old Testament God isn't kind needs to read verses like this. In verses 44 and 48, God then makes an exception for those who were excluded to now be included. Unless they took the covenant sign of circumcision on themselves. The covenant sign of circumcision wasn't only for God's people. God was setting that sign on anyone, foreigner or native, born, temporary worker or not. If they wanted to become God's people, if they wanted to sojourn among God's people, if they wanted to believe God by faith, if they wanted to, like Ruth, say, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. God said, you could take the covenant sign and I will bring you in. Anyone could become a part of God's family by faith. How? How, how would we know? How do you show your heart is with him? 
take the sign. All your males should be circumcised. God is graciously allowing this mixed multitude to come in and be a part of his people and take the Passover. In verse 38, you know, we're reminded that this was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. And no, it's a problem later on. God is highlighting for us and for the first readers that here is a sign that God makes provision for non-Israelite people to take the feast. Outsiders are brought in. This is a picture, friends, I believe, of the ingathering of the Gentile nations. This has always been the plan of God. God has always had a plan to go to the nations. Even though he chose Abraham and Israel to be his son, they were supposed to be a missionary people showing who God was and his holiness. Hear these words from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why? What a selfish request. So that you, your way, may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Oh, wait a minute, it's not selfish. Be with us so people might know and come in. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God and our God shall bless us and shall bless. God shall bless us. Let all the earth, the ends of the earth, fear him. Our great God is bringing in nations to worship him. The outsiders are becoming insiders. This was true in Psalm 67. Isaiah 43 Five and six says similar things. It says, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, from the end of the earth. And yes, talking about Israel being scattered and being brought back in, but it's a picture of all of God's sons and daughters being brought in. And hear these words from the New Testament. In Luke 13, 29, Jesus says, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. The outsiders are becoming insiders because of God's work through the Passover. Passover reminds us who we are by, by reminding us who we were. We were brought in by covenant love. God makes exceptions for his people that were, were outside. They were brought in by love. Reminds us that we, were, we are a mixed multitude, a, a nation of tribes, tongues, and languages. And that we, when we observe the, the Lord's table, which was the Passover and now the Lord's table through Jesus Christ, we are reminded that we're a multi-ethnic, multi-gendered, multi-age family we are but we are one in christ and friends like circumcision baptism is the sign that we believe the lord for salvation this is what he's called us to he's called as we go make disciples he says baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit this is the sign that you are in the family that you are an adopted son or daughter of god the sign doesn't save us or make us worthy of his love. The sign shows us. It shows that we have been buried with Christ and raised with him. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism, friends, is a, a sign for us that something on the inside has happened and, and it is being then expressed on the outside as we 
enter the waters of baptism and are buried and raised again in Christ. It's a symbol. It's a sign. And held together, it's a reminder of what God has done for us in Christ through the gospel. Baptism and the Lord's table are visible reminders of God's work. They're also visible markers of those who believe God's provision of salvation through Jesus. Like an adopted child taking a parent's name. This is what happens to those who are buried with Christ in baptism and and then take the covenant sign on them. If you have more questions about that, I would love to talk to you. This can be hard because uh, um, we, we haven't always been taught well about this. But baptism is where faith goes public. It do, it's, it's not where faith begins. It's where we bring it public. There's a, we have a book. I think it's still on our bookstall. If not, we can get it for you. It's called Going Public by Bobby Jameson. Why baptism is required for church membership. It's just a... It's a, it's a way to remind us that like in the old covenant, God required certain things for his people to not be excluded but included. God requires us to be following him, to show that what he has done in our hearts is real. God excluded all those who would not receive his salvation and the accompanying signs from the Passover. But verses 46 and verse 47 tell us that we're not only included when we take those signs, we are unified in Christ. Verses 46 and, and 47 are, it shall be eaten in one house. The Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So the, the oneness language, the, the unifying language, they're supposed to do this in one house together with multiple houses together and the whole people of God together on the same day reminds us that God is unifying us with his love. One house, one meal, a whole sacrifice reminds us that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's unifying us with himself friends. And this picture is, is taken over into John 19, 36, where we're reminded that Jesus Christ uh, was a whole and complete sacrifice. He was the unifying piece. John 19, 36 says, for these things took place, that was Jesus was died, his bones were not broken, but he died on the cross. That scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Reminding that Passover sacrifice so many years ago was only a, a pointer to the greater sacrifice of Jesus. He's our unifying whole. So Jesus Christ comes. We were excluded through the sacrifice of the Passover and resurrection of that final Passover lamb. We are included. And through the Lord's table, we are unified. There's another feast of remembrance though it's not just the passover it's also also the feast of unleavened bread and the feast of unleavened bread and passover were celebrated together the feast of unleavened bread was celebrated along with passover together they remind us the next generation of what the lord has done they, they remind the next generation what the lord has done think of it like like thanksgiving reminds us that all good things come from god that christmas reminds us that god became man Easter reminds us that God not only died, but he rose again. And every Sunday, we celebrate that Easter truth that he is risen. He's risen indeed. And we remember that the Lord didn't just do this for a group of people, like the branch or other churches surrounding. He did this for me. He did this for you, individually. Audrey, Logan, Sean. Gage, Jess, Kayla, Matt, and you. If you're putting your trust in God, he is making you an individual, one of his own. Can you imagine that? You know yourself. I know me better than most. God knows me better, and yet he still loves me. God also doesn't just love groups of people. He loves individuals. 
friend, he loves you. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never felt loved before. I, I want you to know today that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread teaches us that God loves me. Chapter 13, verse 8 is a reminder of that. Let's read chapter 13, 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of Abib. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat no, you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen within your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. How are you supposed to know what he has done and who you are? He's given you a memorial, a feast to remember what he's done. And he wants you to remember that he has saved you. He, is, he, has, he has saved you as a person. He loves you. And it's true, in the West, we have a problem with expressive individualism. But we need to remember that God does love individuals. So he gave us this feast. He gave us the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's more than a day off work and a, a day to watch football. It was a regular celebration on the calendar to remind myself and others what Yahweh did for me. And therefore who I am, son, daughter of Yahweh. Verse 3, on this day, they were supposed to do this year after year. And so on this day, you know, a year later after the Exodus, they were supposed to celebrate this. And they were supposed to say, on this day last year, you were too little to remember. But I remember that God brought me out, us out, with a strong hand. And in verse 10, they're supposed to do this year after year. Why? Why are they supposed to do this? So the kids can remember. Friends, we didn't do uh, the baby dedications on this week on purpose, it was God's sovereign plan for it to happen. Uh, we had it planned earlier in, in the month or, or last month, I can't remember, and I got sick and we had to postpone it till today. I think as a visible reminder that we are supposed to tell our kids year after year, day after day, when they sit down, when we rise up about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that he's rescued us with a strong hand. So their kids would remember, so your kids will remember year after year, friends, and that they might put their hope in God. That he might become their deliverer. You know, it was uh, July, this July will be five years ago, my wife broke her hip. July 2017. And there's informal remembrances of that time. We never want to go back to that park where she broke her hip again. But we remember. And there, there's a chance for us as a family to remember how God provided for us everything we needed. We had two two-year-olds. And God's church provided for that. Gave me time off to work from home and to just not work at all. They provided money so we could have a nanny to help take care of the kids and and God's grace was abundant for us year after year. And friends, that's just a small taste of what God has done in Christ. God gave up Christ on the cross so that we might be included. And every year after year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be a reminder of what he'd done through the Exodus and what he'll finally do in the final Exodus. So set up memorials. Remember pointing back to how God has delivered you from the slavery to sin. 
verses 3 through 7 remind us that they were supposed to clean all the leaven. There wasn't supposed to be any leaven as a picture of cleaning out the sin and God's final cleaning out of the sin and, and a, a reminder that they were to leave in haste. All of, this, all of this was a reminder that God was doing something with their, their sins, their, their evil, their rebellion, and what had been done to them. The evil, the sin, and the, the hate that had been poured on them. God was remedying that all. Verse 5 reminds us that, reminds them that what he was saving them to. He was not only saving them from this land of slavery, he was bringing them into the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey was just a, a word picture of things were right there. Friends, we're headed there too. Not to the land of Canaan, but the greater Canaan. The new heavens and the new earth. God has promised that he is saving people from something and giving them something far better in its place. And the church is just a foretaste, a picture of that. So as we come in, are we a land flowing with milk and honey? Are, are, are we a, a land flowing with overflowing welcome and, 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 and nourishment and, and kindness? This is what God was bringing the Israelites into. And their holidays Friends, these holy days, these festivals were supposed to be reminders of that year after year. I just want to encourage you, parents, families, college students, singles, it doesn't matter, all of us as God's people, how are we using our holidays for him? Easter's coming up. We can do this at Thanksgiving and Christmas. How are we making them special? How are we reminding and using them as a way to show that God has provided everything we need in Christ Jesus? There are ways to do that. Make your traditions year after year pointers to God's grace. It's not about presents under the tree. It's about a, a greater gift of, of God, the Son of God, becoming man. Thanksgiving is a time to remember that all good things come from God. So as you're feasting on a Thanksgiving meal, going around and, and telling the great things the Lord has done. Maybe it's a time for you to polish up your testimony. Maybe it's the first time you've ever given your testimony to your kids. Is it a time for you to set up question and answer? Son, ask me what great things the Lord has done. Dad, what great things has the Lord done? Let me tell you about it, son. This is what God did in my life. Catechisms are another way to do this. Our church uses the New City Catechism. It's a question and answer form. You can use with your kids. You can find it online. They have lots of great songs and teachings to go with them. Friends, if you're interested in passing on the faith to the next generation, you can volunteer in our kids' ministry. You can volunteer in Twigs. You have to be a member to do that. So coming into membership and, and, and then teaching our kids year after year, Sunday after Sunday, the good things of God. We're not asking you to do every Sunday. It's only every other Sunday. You can also be a helper. You don't have to be a member to be a, a helper in that class where you don't have to teach, but you're, you're being an example to kids. Another way to do this is family meals. The, the Katie Galemi has... Uh, is organizing this for us. And, and it's not just college students, but also college students and, and, and those who are professionals and singles and families. It's a way for us to get together, to have a meal together, to know each other, so that me might tell the great things the Lord has done. Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, attach yourselves to each other so that we might teach our kids and tell our kids that God, with a strong hand, brought us out of slavery. I can tell by the giggles of my son that I'm going a little too long. We're almost done. And the last memorial is another opportunity to remember and proclaim what God has done and who we are. We have the Passover. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and now the consecration of the firstborn. What does this mean? What is this all about? Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. 
Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. From when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males, the firstborn, the first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So again, verse 14 sets up the question and answer. This was actually built into the festivals. The son was supposed to ask, what does this mean? What does this festival mean? And the, the father, the parents are supposed to answer, you should say, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is a command in actions. Command in actions are to be a constant reminder like a mark on your hand or between your eyes. This is supposed to be a symbol for them that everything they do and everything they think should be thought through this rubric. I am a son, a child of God because of what he did for me. So what's this ceremony? What's this all about? This consecration of the firstborn where animals are supposed to be sacrificed or killed or bought back and the sons are supposed to be bought back with a sacrifice for money. That the clean animals were sacrificed like a lamb without blemish was sacrificed in the place of the firstborn. Unclean animals, they could either be killed or redeemed. They couldn't be sacrificed to the Lord. Numbers 3 teaches us what that was, what that process, what that ceremony was. They could be redeemed with five shekels as the, as the temple had set, as the tabernacle had set the shekel. The firstborn of the sons had to be redeemed. They couldn't be killed, couldn't be sacrificed, praise the Lord. But the picture was, unless you redeem the firstborn, they would be like the dead animals. So as we go into the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, verse 23, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to take part in this very ceremony. In fact, it quotes this, this very passage that, that Jesus was going to be redeemed. Friends, the ceremony of buying back the firstborn is just a shadow cast by the final lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So what did God do? He redeemed. And who are they? Who are they redeemed? They are sons of God. What did he do and what does it make us? Redeemed sons of God. Friends, Jesus actually was the firstborn of God. The New Testament tells us this. He was eternally God. He was always God. And the New Testament tells us he became man. He was born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem us from the law. The firstborn is not just being born. It could also mean the preeminent one, the most important one. And in Jesus' case, he was the one, the firstborn we're pointing to. Romans 8.29 tells us that Jesus was the firstborn of many brothers. The Jesus in Colossians 1.15 was the firstborn of all creation. And this Easter, this is what we're going to be studying. Colossians 1.18, that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. Why? Use that language that in everything, he might have the preeminence. The consecration of the firstborn was pointing to Jesus, who was the substitute for sinners. Jesus became the firstborn among many brothers and the firstborn from the dead because we needed a substitute. He was God's preeminent one. And I'm stealing this from one of my professors, but I... I couldn't think of a better way to do it. That substitute, friends, we remember that he took our place. That substitute, Jesus Christ, the lamb who all the other lambs were pointing to, 
His death became the price for our freedom. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What was that, Paul? What's so important that Christ died for our sins? He was the lamb slain in our place in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with these very verses. He was the firstborn that was slain for us. His death was the price of our freedom. So we look at that lamb of the Old Testament, the firstborn of the Old Testament, and look at the firstborn of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ, that he was also the perfect substitute. First Peter tells us that you were, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like the lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish. Jesus Christ became that perfect lamb. He, he was that perfect lamb. He never did anything wrong. He was always perfect. And he lived a life of perfect obedience so that he, as God, could take your sin for you. And he was not only the perfect substitute, he was the slain substitute. So why is there blood? Why does someone have to die? Because without the blood, there's no remission of sins, Hebrews tells us. And friends, he was not only the perfect substitute, he was not only the slain substitute, he was the successful substitute. Friends, there is no maybe in the gospel. When you put your faith in the perfect slain substitute from God, Jesus Christ, it is certain no one who believes in that Jesus will be in hell. Nobody. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be with him in heaven. Fully, finally, exploring the wonders of Calvary. The wonders of what it means to be a family. Do you want to know what he's done for you? He's given his own son. Do you want to know what that makes you? If you believe and repent in him, it makes you a child of God. You're adopted into his family. So friends, as we close this, we're going to sing a song written by a man named Jordan Coughlin. And he wrote a song called All I Have is Christ in 2008. And he was writing it as a meditation on John Newton's old hymn, Old Things Are Passed Away. Specifically, the thought that it, if God had not loved us first, we would still be refusing his mercy. He, he was helped by his dad, Bob Coughlin, to trim the song down and make, make it more remember, memorable. Memorable, sorry. And Jordan, you know, he wasn't setting out to write a classic hymn, but it has become a, a modern classic that has been blessing many people. And it's a reminder, friends, as we sing this song, all we have is Christ. And because he's all we have, he is all we need. He's everything we need. He has done everything that we need in order to be returned to God. He was perfect. He was slain. And that substitution was successful. So we can sing with glory. All I have is Christ. I, I was going my own way. I was a hell-bound sinner. But, but Christ rescued me. So we can sing hallelujah. All I have is Christ.